Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Shep Gordon is a legend in multiple industries. He was a manager extraordinaire to such acts as Alice Cooper, Blondie, Teddy Pendergrass, the Gypsy Kings, Rick James, and many, many more. Shep was also the sole inventor of the celebrity chef, paving the way for names like Emeril Lagasse and Anthony Bourdain. What many people don't know is that Shep was also a major horror producer back in the day. He produced a number of classics from Wes Craven and John Carpenter, including They Live, Village of the Damned, The People Under the Stairs, Prince of Darkness, and Shocker. But above all things, Shep is an extraordinary human being and has a lot to teach the world, particularly those who work in entertainment. Shep first got on my radar with the fantastic documentary that Mike Myers did about him called Supermensch. Supermensch is a movie that I rewatch at least, at least three times a year. The lessons in it are absolutely golden, and there's a lot in there that I just try to remind myself of all the time. Shep's life story not only uncovers the keys to having a prolific life, but shows you how to do a lot of good along the way. It's a really incredible movie and a downright fascinating and hysterical watch. I also highly recommend Shep's autobiography, They Call Me Supermensch, which is also loaded with some of the most incredibly actionable insights I've ever heard on the topics of success, business, entertainment, and life in general. Clearly, I'm a huge fan of Shep and was very humbled that he took the time to speak to me and answer my questions. Shep really means a great deal to me, so this was super, super exciting. Anyway, let's get to Shep, shall we? Here is the supermensch himself, Mr. Shep Gordon. Hello, Shep. How are you? Good, Nick. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. How's everything over there? Uh, beautiful. A gorgeous day. Well, thank you again for taking the time. I I, I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, I mean, up front, I, I do want to let you know that I've been a tremendous fan of yours ever since the documentary came out. I stumbled upon it at South by Southwest and was just completely and totally blown away. Um, to this day, I rewatch it at least three times a year because there's <laughs> the lessons in there are so critically important to me. And particularly in these times, um, there's so many elements of, of your life and your character and who you are that I think are, are critically important to be reminded of. So thank you for being so generous with your wisdom and uh, and for kind of being a spiritual mentor to me. I mean, I, I've gotten a tremendous amount out of uh, out of your your life and work. So I guess I just want to start by saying thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. That's nice to hear. So, I mean, another thing that, um, that I've, I've gotten from you is the, the kind of daily gratitude practice. I mean, to this day, I, I just say thank you out loud first thing in the morning and last thing at night and uh, not to get too spiritual, but from oh, what no, I've, I, I just watched a, uh, an Oprah Winfrey conversation and, um, she, she talked about exactly that. Really? Yeah. Before they asked her, well, how do you explain your success? And she said, before I get out of bed every day, I say thank you and, you know, really uh, try and live in gratitude for a moment. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, I think it's, um, it can't hurt. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've read that in, when you're in a state of gratitude, you're psychologically incapable of fear and you're incapable of anger. And those are the two most destructive emotions to success in any realm, whether it's emotional or whatever. But, um, I don't know if I agree with it completely because I definitely go through fear. I don't really go through much anger. I think anger may be more 
fear is a weird emotion. I don't understand fear, even though I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, I still haven't quite figured it out, um, like where that actually comes from. I think um, I talk about this and people ask questions about it. So for me, I, maybe it's a self-worth issue. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, in my case anyway, um, but I still get that it's really weird because uh, uh, I don't now I realize I don't have to be worried about winning and losing. Hmm. Um, and I still get it. If it's for someone else, I still get a fear of sort of losing for them. You know, I'll uh, lose an hour of sleep here or there. Or some, it's a weird emotion. Anyway, that's a, but it a sounds subject. like it, it mostly applies to other people, though, as opposed to your, like the people that you're working with or, or managing. No, I get the fear for them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for me, I'm pretty uh, – I've had a few times. But I was always um, – I always used to – uh, getting up in age, I always had to deal with people whose parents were dying or somebody was dying in their life. And I had never really um, had to face mortality on my own, for myself. Mm-hmm. I used to tell people – I had this line that I used to say that, um, listen, man, the only – you have to, if you believe in a higher spirit, the only thing he gives all of us is birth and death. So unless this higher spirit is a real scumbag, um, it's got to be a good thing. Yeah. You know, birth is good. He's given us a gift. And that all works until the moment you get a phone call saying you have a disease that's going to kill you. <laughs> 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 and then fear takes over so much deeper than gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> now that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Moments, yeah. <laughs> but I, I just had that conversation with a, there's a cancer doctor who's been very kind to me, and um, he's sort of my go-to guy. And he just found out he had cancer. Oh my gosh, the doctor does. Doctor, and we, I saw him last week, and we had that conversation. I said, okay, so how many hundreds of people have you comforted on the phone, and how fucking scared did you get? When you got the phone call from your doctor. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, uh, really. Uh, but that's just the way life is. So anyway, that's yeah. a long circle of fear. But um, <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that about uh, about your your friend, though. That's, yeah, that's really uh, unfortunate. I think, you know, he will. We won't be fine. But he's, his brain, you know, he he understands that there's a time limit on all of our stuff. And, right. You know, ex- excited to try and cure it. So. So where did your, your kind of gratitude practice come from? Is it something that you always had or is it something that you, de- you developed gradually? Yeah, no, just about everything for me is a knee-jerk reaction. I would say some of the greatest influences on my life were um, Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Um, back in the 70s, I moved to Maui. And I think it must have been shortly thereafter, maybe in the early 80s or something, that Bill Moyers did a series with him. Oh, yeah, the interview series. Yeah. Uh, and I tripped across it somehow here in Maui on a, on a cassette. Oh, wow. Uh, and, um, and then for the next 10 years or so, I made it mandatory that anybody who stayed with me at the house watch the series. Really? Yeah. I just said, you know you got to watch this. Yeah. You don't have, you know, three or four hours. And you come, the reason you're coming to Maui is to watch this and then you can start your journey. But he just had, 
You know, he he um, he dealt with the concept of bliss, hmm. and how do you find your bliss? And um, it's the first time it really got me thinking about um, where I was headed and was it a blissful place? And it, and I was living in the fast lane in L.A. and I got to meet then uh, a human mentor in Roger Verger, right. who you know um, very peaceful and very happy and very successful and had uh you know taken all the rings off the merry-go-round and still was happy we're in right. the world he was living in the guys who had won you know the the, uh, the external things weren't real happy um so i think joseph campbell got me looking for someone who could teach me how i could find my bliss mm-hmm. and when i met jay i found someone who appeared to have met his bliss you know found his bliss and he let me hang out with him and then I got the lucky chance to be around His Holiness, who um, lives in a state of bliss. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, was, so all of it done unconsciously, you know. Um, I, I think, although His Holiness never said it to me, he never really said much of anything. I was his, you know, I was his cook. Um, so, you know, he'd say thank you. Um, but um, I always felt when I was around him and I saw him interact with people a lot. I was still on his board, so I've gotten to see him now in a suit and tie, a different mm-hmm. perspective than a chef's coat. Um, and um, I always felt, although I never spoke about it, that his bliss was seeing the miracle in everything. Right. Whether it was a cup, a person, an animal, a leaf, a piece of paper, a television set. Whatever he, he always seemed to get this giggle of seeing a miracle, and then the information would come in, and um, so that's sort of what I—that's when I I hit upon in my own life, like waking up and going, "Wow, what a miracle! Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you." And I just yeah. felt, and it just sort of became a way of doing it. And I forget it once in a while. I get in a confused state or a fear state or. A, something you know and i'll jump out of bed and go right to like you know fall to whatever that human thing is and, but i try and come back to it so but it's basically knee-jerk yeah i, I never ha- i think there are principles that like um transcendental meditation seems to people i know who really are serious about it seem to be able to find the place of gratitude yeah um, you know so i think there are practices that can get you there mm-hmm. i just never was a practitioner Interesting. I have a friend coming here for the Ramdas retreat. Who we have dinner. He's one of the musicians in uh, Krishna Das band, oh, wow. and and he teaches transcendental meditation in Japan. Wow. So I, I, um, I, I just gone through a weird moment in my life where fear and stuff like that came in. I, I said to myself, um, you know, I think it's time. It's my moment for maybe some to be a become a practitioner or something that could. Um, help me when when I feel like I'm getting weak. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to try. Uh, I'm seeing him next week. So I'm going to ask him if he can get me on a program. Oh well, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I definitely recommend. I've been doing it for a few years, and I'm not that much of a spiritual yeah. practitioner to any degree, but I can definitely attest to how it just helps your mental clarity yeah. and focus yeah. and acuity. I yeah. feel like my IQ has gone up having done it. It just helps you think better yeah. and clearer and Clear way more. Yeah, get some of the garbage out of there. Yeah, exactly. It just sharpens your focus. Back to the giggle. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's getting back to that giggle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the beauty of it is it's simplicity. I mean, you don't have to relearn technique after it's one technique and it just yeah. deepens the way you do it. It's amazing because I'm 73 and I know nothing about it except that I've seen people go to it and I've seen changes in them. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah, there's something to it. Yeah. yeah, there's something to it. Yeah, it's it's become a big part of my life. So yeah, that's exciting that you're about to embark on that. I definitely recommend I'm it. Excited about it. Cool. So um, I mean, like I said, very familiar with your work and a lot of your the the principles that you attribute your life and success to. And one of the ones that I find the most fascinating is the idea of creating history as opposed to waiting for it to happen. And that's been a kind of huge pinnacle for the way that you've managed artists and and uh, your entire life. So I was wondering, as far as creating history, what demonstrated to you the power of possibility that you you could impart such, you could actually change history? Was there a single defining moment that was a light bulb? You know, I don't think I knew it was a defining moment. Um, it's only when I look back mm. that I see it as a defining moment. Um, but when I was at the University of Buffalo, um, it was when um, we thought of ourselves as the Berkeley of the East. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a time when we were burning the Rotsi buildings and um, we're very empowered. Um, and um, it was um, free love. Mm -hmm. um, there was no AIDS. Um, sexual it was a wide open sexual field. We were that generation, you know, when Kennedy got shot, that was, that was my generation. And we, we felt really empowered. Um, and we got very high, um, which was a new thing also. Mm -hmm. And, um, one night, a, a, so this, this college prank turned into a gigantic event and it was basically a, a prank of writing history I, it was, it, um, there was a dormitory in those days you used to take these little black pills called black beauties and you'd stay up for days doing your test during the test period. So guys had been up for days on these black beauties and they were studying for a biology exam and they were hysterical laughing that, um, the thallus of Marcantia, which was the sex organ of a fern. <laughs> the ruler of a country. Well, that turned into 2,000 people at the Buffalo airport, a fellow named Artie Shine, who was a student, getting off the airplane in a turban, being met by the mayor. The 2,000 people who were picketing um, this fictitious person that didn't exist that we created that was coming to Buffalo. And once the mayor fell for it, we then said he was anti-Semitic, so we got the B'nai B'rith, got 2,000 people at the airport <laughs> who broke through the airport glass to get to this guy with pickets. There's great stuff on, you can Google it, it's great stuff. Oh my God. And finally he got arrested and the dean helped us out. But I think later on, when I started with Alice, um, we weren't, our goal wasn't to get people to like the music. Our people was to get our goal was to get parents to hate Alice, mm -hmm. and so I how do I do that? How can I do that? And uh, 
So I, I smoked a few joints and I said, wouldn't it be great if he, if he got arrested for indecent exposure? And I thought back to my Thales days and I said, I can do that. That's easy. Let me just put him up somewhere naked and call the police. <laughs> and that's really how it started. And it, that one didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is it, it was the, the experience. I just watched um, Teddy Pendergrass documentary uh, last night. And Harold Melville and the Blue Notes last show was the experience, which I never knew. And I managed Teddy, but I never right. knew that. But I didn't manage Harold Melvin. And the Blue Notes. I only managed Teddy afterwards. Right. Uh, and that was the club where we, I put, I paid the promoter $50 to put Alice on stage in clear plastic clothes. And I called the police to have him arrested. And the clothes fogged up by the time the police got there. <laughs> right. So it didn't work, but in my brain, I, it just reinforced. Um, I didn't rehearse it right. I fucked it up. But the concept worked. I had the police there. I had him naked. And that, so that that then became my modus operandi. It wasn't instead of waiting for stuff to happen, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw a chicken on the stage and not tell anybody. Right. And here we go. I know the next day the newspaper is going to talk about this chicken on the stage, even if John Lennon was there. <laughs> so and that just became a modus operandi. Right. And it became. For me, it was how do I get above the noise? It was never to create history to rob anybody or create history to go to war, at least in my brain. It was um, to get above the noise. Um, and in those days, there were the noise, it was just um, primetime TV and newspapers. There was no cable. Mm-hmm. So it was fairly easy to predict what would get above the noise. You know, I knew that in London traffic was always on television. Real easy to block up traffic for 30, 40 miles. I know how to do that. Um, I've seen that in the news 400 times. Trucks break down. They show you on the helicopter shot of the traffic backed up. I know how to do that. So let me put a nude picture of Alice on that. So when the helicopter comes down and shows the traffic, like, what is this disgusting guy? And <laughs> every parent's going to run to their kids and say, don't you dare go see this guy. And they don't even know who he is. But um, they do now. Yeah. So that's, that's what I mean by creating history. That's yeah. sort of, that's where it, 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 it starts with a goal. Mm-hmm. How do I achieve that goal? What will get people and what will, how can I motivate people to buy tickets or buy albums or pay attention? And then I think about what would, if I pick up the newspaper, what would get, you know, if I sort you know, so anyway, that's, that's the method. Interesting. Involved cannabis. <laughs> so yeah. really get out of my brain and mm. so, you know, get way ahead. And what I've learned is that it's all in the details. So you have to really put yourself in that moment or else the clothes are going to always fog up. You know, you have to really, it's, um, so it take it really, um, and that's my bliss state. So I get my quiet place, which Joseph Campbell talks about, which is my jacuzzi. Mm-hmm. My bliss state is being able to pull off those kind of events that, um, you know, help artists define who they are. Yeah. And, um, 
and help them find their audience. And um, I do my 20, 30 minutes and usually come out with something, which is what Joseph Campbell talked about in 74, but I didn't, I didn't know how to get to it. Mm. Um, but that's what I think transcendental meditation is probably really good at. It's getting to that quiet space yeah. where whatever is your bliss thing gets real, really focused. Yeah. What, you know, um, yeah, anyway. it trains your mind to constantly just return to your own home base. And from that place, you could just, you think better, you think clearer, you think bigger. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's an extraordinary technique for sure. Well, that's, that's basically what Joseph Campbell always said. He mm -hmm. said, you'll find it, in, just stay quiet, find a place you're comfortable, give it 20 minutes a day, you will find your bliss. You may end up playing the piano. Yeah. All 20 minutes. You may end up, you know, who knows, but so I'm sure that's the same. Yeah, so, definitely. That special with Bill Moyers is actually on Netflix right now. If you're interested in seeing it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The entire series, it's like 10 hours worth of interviews, but they're all yeah. on Netflix. It is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I think they were all done at the Skywalker ranch because obviously George Lucas, they were done at the Skywalker ranch and he was, George says he, he was the influence for star Wars. Yeah, exactly. The whole hero's journey is Luke Skywalker and yeah. Another thing that I was wondering is being somebody who has been able to transverse across so many different industries, music, movies, tequila, chefs, kind of all of the above. Are there any kind of consistent business principles that apply to all of these different areas? Or is there some notion of, I've heard this theory of multiple roads converging at the top. In other words, if you make it in one industry, you can apply those similar principles to make it in other industries. What are some of those the most consistently present principles you see that factor into success across these multiple industries that are notably hard to get into? Yeah, my, you know, for me, uh, um, I think there's a lot of a lot of layers to that question. Um, so for me, it was basically the same because my goal was the same. I think that if if um, my bliss was you know getting someone through, so um, for many people, bliss is the reward you get from having brought someone through. Um, that never really interested me that much. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for me, they were almost all the same industries because what I provided was a way for someone to get through, um, to get through the noise. But, you know, I think prob my sense would be that, um, all the industries are basically the same, um, the business side, but I never really, I mean, there I saw little things like the liquor industry of every business I've ever been involved with is the best because there's no returns, no spoilage, no right. like that's, and those things are really important if your goal is accumulation. Mm -hmm. For me, it was it was more vehicles to it was a way to make my artists money and famous by hooking with a product and thinking of the artist as a brand. So I was never building businesses. I was building, I was selling my artists to build brands, mostly for other people. I think the only one we kept, Cobble Wobble, which we eventually sold. Right. With Sammy. But Cobble Wobble was a way to um, 
to lengthen Sammy's career. That's how that came about. That was the same kind of thought, you know. Same idea. Same so it's all been of, in the service of others. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And then once it goes, they go do their thing, and I come back to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. Running. But I think, you know, I I, I have to assume that um, it's a combination of um, toughness, um, some greed, um, and amazing uh, work effort. Uh, ethic and ability. Yeah. And those are the ones that rise to the top in every business that I've seen. Yeah. Uh, you know, and um, how much you accumulate becomes a matter of uh, what you're doing it for. Right. And uh, there's no wrong or right. Um, I think it's whatever feels good to you. Yeah. You know? No, it makes perfect sense. As far as toughness in the uh, in the documentary, Michael Douglas described you as having a heart of gold, but also having the capacity to be a real motherfucker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when you represent artists, it's uh, very difficult. You know? Yeah. Um, there's um, there's um, it's such fool's gold to the rest of the world. They forget that it's humans. Mm-hmm. You have the best in the world trying to get through with schemes and scams, and um, so that you know, my own life I wasn't as good protection, but for them that's sort of you know that's what they pay me for, right? Well, what I'm curious about is having both of those qualities. I mean, you as somebody who's always done compassionate business, but also having that tough side. These seem like paradoxical qualities, no, but they do it but they seem complimentary in you. And I'm wondering, how are you able to balance that sense of real strong, assertive toughness, but also real serious, strong compassion where just everybody real, real honesty, you know, um, just real honesty. So it all comes down to honesty. I think so. I mean, for me, it basically does people maybe not like hearing the stuff at the other end of the phone, but, um, you know, I, I think, um, being fast, Fast answers, direct, honest. You know, I get things for Alice. I mean, Alice is really the only thing I do now. Yeah. And, uh, I get things that there's, it's not even within the realm of possibilities going to do it. You know, um, and it'll start off with, you know, I uh, had dinner with Alice three nights ago and he really loves the idea of, and I send back and I say, uh, unfortunately, Alice doesn't really have anything to do with that decision. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you bought him dinner, but I've already, um, got that corner cover. Thank you very much. It was, uh, thank you for reaching out to me. Yeah. Instead of, well, I'll check with the house and other, we've been together so long. I know where it's at, you know, right. And, and formal rhythm, that would be like two or three months of emails. Oh, I tried to get him. I'll get back to you next Wednesday. Right. All that just back and forth bullshit that plagues entertainment and then and then i probably every business at that level right um but person with celebrities even more so Mm -hmm. you know um so i I just i'm always really honest and direct and if it's painful it's painful but it it comes at you fast and with honesty um that's all that's really all i can do my mike myers tells a great story (laughs) 
Which what's that? Matt, in the documentary, I think he told it in the documentary. Maybe it's in the book. Oh yeah, on Wayne's World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I do. You know, then I called him up and said, "Okay, here's the real truth. I had to put you in a corner. You've run out of time. I owe you big time, but I work for him. I don't work for you. Right. And it's really important. And you're a schmuck to say no because it doesn't." It doesn't affect you one iota. It's 10 seconds. Nobody's going to know what it is. Right. So I had to put you, since you said no, which you shouldn't have, I had to put you in a place where you couldn't say no anymore. <laughs> but right. I, really, you know, I didn't wait for him to bust me. I called him right up and told him exactly the truth of what it was and why I did it and why he wasn't being hurt and how it was a win-win for both. Right. And, um, Sorry if <laughs> <laughs> sorry to ruffle feathers, but yeah, I think that that's a that's a perfect case study in being assertive, playing hardball, but in a, in a scenario where there are no victims and no blood is drawn. Exactly, you work that extra effort to make sure there's no blood, you know. And if you have to draw a little, you go back and you know make it really clear mm-hmm. <laughs> that you really, you know, uh, it's just not the way you operate and can make it up to you. And Mike, Mike and I became, you know, obviously he made the movie. I mean, we became. Yeah. Great friends. One of the few people I communicate with almost every week. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. Really cool. Really, but it started on, you know. <laughs> but, I, but I think that's really what separates in the industries I've seen the the ones who really get ahead and and get ahead in a way, a way that um, they're not leaving blood everywhere. Right. You know, you have to do what you have to do, but you don't have to be ugly about it. Right. You know, and you can, if you have to do something, you work as hard as you can to make sure the other person's a winner. I, right. you know, I don't like winners and losers. I like winners and winners. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's a huge, a huge way to, a huge mindset to enter business with. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to shift gears and talk about Supermensch a little bit. So I was wondering how much of a hand you had creatively in the creation of Supermensch. What's that? None? None whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't want any. I didn't see it till it was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike wouldn't sign a letter till I saw it. Um, and um, I don't remember if there was. I don't think there were any changes. Um, no, I, I was the only time the only bump I had with it. I did. Um, I did a few of the interviews cause it was more convenient. Mm-hmm. So I did it at my house. Um, like my cousin Patty happened to be here and she's 92 and she couldn't really travel. So I wasn't in him, but I set him up, but I went to New York about three months, four, maybe three months into it. And I went up to his house and it was like walking into CSI. <laughs> the house was pictures of my life on the wall with notepads and notepads and like, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I still haven't. I don't think I've met the kid who played me yet. Oh no, uh, maybe I met him at one of the premieres. It's all it was such a blur. Um, but yeah, no, I stayed really far away from it. That's uh, funny. Did you meet the kid who? Did you meet the kid who played Teddy? Uh, I did not meet the kid who played Teddy. He looked a lot like him. It kind of blew my mind. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> So I know that you um, you're still obviously repping Alice right now, right? That's great, and you both still go on tour together, and just yeah, I don't like go all the times anymore. But he does a lot; he loves it out there. 
Very he's very an investor now. The kids are all out of the house. So. He's oh really? Yeah, the <laughs> wife wife's in the show, so she comes out with them. And oh wow, that's great. Have a good time. Um, so I know that you, you've never had a contract with Alice and there's been a number of other artists who you've not had contracts with and you've done things on a handshake. And I mean, I'm fascinated as to whether or not this is a recommended way to do business in your case would have been some of the benefits of it. Obviously I would imagine there's a spirited sense of we're in this together. If you don't have a contract, you don't have the lawyers involved, but is this a course of action that you recommend in the right circumstances? Um, yeah, it's a hard one to actually answer. Um, I'm sure it's very nuanced because your relationship with Alice obviously is very, it was also nuanced. And and I don't, you know, when I look again, when you look back at my life, I'm not sure that I made all the right decisions. Um, some of them were probably made for the wrong reasons, Mm -hmm. you know, some kind of, uh, of, um, arrogance maybe on my part. Um, I think that, um, now having great grandchildren who I probably would like to leave more to and charities that I are so in need, um, and seeing the waste of a lot of the money that I help create, but in a normal management relationship, um, whatever you worked on, you continue to earn your money on. Mm -hmm. So if you worked on three albums with an artist, and then you separate ways on those three albums rather than the new manager getting the money. The money usually went to the original manager. I, for whatever reason, arrogance or something, never wanted it. Um, so Never um, wanted the residual money after you were yeah, done. So like, you know, if I'm not doing the work, I don't want the money. And I think that was some kind of false arrogance. You think that sounds, I mean, having her hear that, that sounds like humility as opposed to arrogance. I don't know about humility. Uh, okay. It sounds nice to say, but I'm not sure. Um, I mean, that maybe. I don't know. I really don't know if we, you know, at the time it was um, not wanting to take something from any of them. That's what I, you know, would right. tell kids in the office. Hey, man, you know, you work for your money, you work for a living. We are lucky people. We've done really well. God bless them. Let them go off and. Yeah. Know, but in retrospect, every one of them gave the new managers that commission. So the kids in my office who would have shared in it because they all shared. And right. So I'm not going to use it right now. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, that just not. So it's, it's a hard one to say. I mean, I, I don't know if Alice and I would have had 50 years if we had a contract. Wow. Because there were years I didn't, we didn't speak uh, mm-hmm. at all, you know, when, um, didn't see each other, didn't speak, didn't have a phone call. He was headed in a direction I didn't like. Right. Um, so um, I, I think if we had been, if there had been a contract, it probably would have been, diff- uh, it would have been a different relationship. Not having the contract, our friendship was always more important than our um, business relationship. Right. But, you know, if, if anybody can have that, it's a great thing to have. To have a relationship that's friendship first and then business secondary. You can talk and say, you know, if we do ever split, like the only thing I'd like is to great retain my percentage. Maybe that's what I would have probably done different. Ask them to sign something that says, I, you know, if we ever split that on the stuff I worked on, I keep my percentage. Right. Right. That would be probably, you know, 
Gotcha. My advice. All right. Last uh, last few questions here. So you've been very outspoken about the dangers of fame, so to speak. And in your experience, having worked with so many celebrities and artists, what are the qualities of those who are able to survive and thrive within fame and still remain on top of it and remain happy and, and stable? You know, I think you have to find a, a, a crutch to help you. Um, and, I mean, I, I'm not experiencing fame like anybody I've ever worked with, but even at my level, we started our conversation. I'm at 73. I'm going to transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure part of the fame from the movie is part of what is moving me to that. Mm. Uh, that even that little touch of fame, although I can't really feel it, I can't really see it, but I, I, I mean, that's how we started off our conversation. I've never right. felt that did it before. Um, and um, I can't say that that's what's different, but um, it certainly is a contributing factor. It's different walking through an airport, having someone, you know, tracking you. Um, and in my case, you don't know why, because I'm not Alice. Alice, you always know why. <laughs> um, uh, it's just it, you go through life a little bit differently. And if, when you get to be one of those guys, you have to figure out a way to um, – to uh, embrace it instead of reject it. Right. Um, which is not always the easiest thing to do because the humans on the other side are not as always embraceable. <laughs> you get a lot of weird people out there. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it all takes time. You know, we all only have 24 hours in a day. Right. So it all, it all takes time. If you're going to be, um, you know, compassionate to people and, be in gratitude. You can't just say, Hey, I'm busy. You know, you want someone comes over to you and says, I've seen the movie and it, you know, I was born in Oceanside. I have my mother. My dog bit me too. <laughs> I go to Starbucks for a coffee. No, you, you have to sit and right. Well, you become someone that's, you don't want to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's difficult. Yeah. Know? It sounds like it. Yeah. Um, so I know you had worked with, uh, Wes Craven and John Carpenter on a number of occasions. How was that? How was working with those two directors? How was the overall horror business for you? You know, it was fantastic. Um, um, it was a really interesting moment. It, it's, um, sort of it, it, when I had this little independent film company in LA and um, nobody ever saw our movies. So we, we never made any money, mm-hmm. um, but I love, I love the company. I love the films. I wanted to keep it going. I love the employees. Um, we had done, we did stop making sense and Koya Miscotzi and uh, kiss of the spider woman. But in those days, you know, you, I don't, kiss of the spider woman is the only one that maybe crossed a million dollars and we distributed. We did. So anyway, I decided to do some research and uh, home video was becoming very big. Cable TV was becoming very big. I decided I would do some research to see what genre of movie cost of production to gross was the biggest money earner. And by far it was horror movies. Right. In those days, if you made a horror movie cheap enough, just the video sales. Um, 
So uh, Jim Wyatt, who was chairman of, uh, I think he was just president then of William Morris and a good friend, I went to and I said, listen, um, who are the two hottest Howard directors in, in America? And he said, John Carpenter, Wes Craven. And I said, who represents me? He said, I do. I said, good. What is their, what, who do they hate the most and why? They hate the fucking studios because they won't give them the last cut. Last cut, you know, last cut is, yep. means it's your movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have last cut, it's their movie. Um, what's on the screen. Right. So I said, okay, I'll give them, uh, here's what I'll do. I'll give them last cut. They have to guarantee they won't give me the name of the movie till it's finished, that I'll never get a script in my office, that they never will let me on the set. I'll give them uh, X amount of dollars a movie. I don't want a budget. Um, They can't ever give me a budget. They can spend a penny on the movie, or they can spend everything I give them on the movie. I really don't care. The only thing I care about is that when the first card comes up over the title of the movie, whatever that title is, which I don't care about, it says John Carpenter's blah, blah, blah. Wes Craven's blah, blah, blah. I give them a check. They never have to meet me. They don't have to see me. They don't have to talk to anybody. There's no assistance. There's, wow. no, there's no budgets. There's no approvals. There's no nothing. <laughs> it's uh, full creative control. Yeah. And that's what I did. I gave them, uh, we did four. I think we did two movies with each, two with, and then the West hit with a big movie at Miramax. I let him out of my third movie to do it. So then they bought me out and John ended up, uh, doing something. He gave me an executive producer credit. on. I think we're going to maybe do something again with they live, but it was a great, yeah, it was a great experience for both of us. I mean, for all three of us, I think, you know, they made movies they really wanted to make. Mm -hmm. Um, in John's case, he made some good money. Wes spent a lot of it on special effects. Yeah. Um, Shocker was a real special effects movie that was early in the special effects game. So, right, right, yeah, that'd be only a couple of times. And Um, you were giving these artists creative control well before the days of Blumhouse, and but it's yeah, yeah. the model that then Blumhouse used. Mm -hmm. Um, That became the model basically for genre movies. Right, right. Are you still producing in any capacity right now in film? Uh, I did the. I do. um, I mean, I. I have some things with John because of the day lives and mm-hmm. um, I did um, Teddy Pendergrass's um, documentary with the BBC. Oh, nice. We, just, we won last Friday, the audience award. For oh, like congratulations. Yeah, yeah, really. It's a really good piece. Oh, that's great. Um, so a couple of those things, a guy named Michael Brody, um, whose life story I had bought him back in the seventies uh, that being made a documentary now, but not really active. Gotcha. And you're on the board of real effects, right? I, I know some of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Love my next-door neighbor is Tom Cartsotis. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah I love <laughs> those guys. Steve's great. Dave's whole gang. Very cool. So bringing it back to Joseph Campbell, what what is your bliss right now? What are you working on right now that you're most excited about? Um, I'm getting excited to try this transcendental meditation. My cooking, I've been uh, perfecting my Chinese cooking been uh, really exciting i made a, a great shrimp with lobster sauce just like back in long island in my youth how nice work-wise you know alice we're, we're going to do a new show we just came up with some funny ideas for a new show Very i do cool. a big I do a, um 
big benefit New Year's Eve for the Maui Food Bank. We raised um, $400,000 last year. We fed the island, basically, oh for my the year. God. And it's, um, it's a great show. It's uh, Steve Tyler and Alice, um, Dave Mason, and Linda Carter, and uh, Michael McDonald, Pat Simmons. Um, Weird Al. So the same people every year for like 20 years. And they, all of them, oh, just about all of them live here. Oh, very cool. So we have a great time. So you're staying busy, obviously. I'm staying busy. Yeah. <laughs> um, my last question. So, I mean, I feel like the, the the examples that you've set, your words of wisdom, the the life that you've led. I feel like these principles have never been more important than right now, given the the, the climate that we're living in, the time of social unrest. Is the are is there any chance of either a Supermensch two or any <laughs> any TV shows with you front and center? Are you looking at any other possible offers projects? I don't know. You know, I, I the, the less I leave Maui, the happier I am. Right. So, would have to shoot in Maui. Really hard to do stuff here. Yeah. I've, had, I've had a couple of you know a couple of interesting things. I mean, I. I I hope somebody takes the Anthony Bourdain slot. Yeah. Uh, I hope somebody comes in and, and does that. You know, that, that, that to me was worthwhile television. That was, you know, um, beginning who he is and how much fun, you know, he really, he showed off cultures in a beautiful way. Um, you, you put that against the climate that appears to be in America today. And it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. Somebody, you know, so yeah, I don't, I, I watch way too much of the news today, and uh, maybe that's where the fear comes from. Yeah. So, you know, seeing uh, everything I believe in falling apart in front of my eyes and and seeing a human population that's enjoying it, which is mind-blowing. I mean, I, I get a human doing what Trump does. We've had those kind of people all through life. It's just amazing to see Americans you know, 2%, 3%, okay. But to see 35% of Americans be white supremacists in 2018, living in Maui, we don't see that. Right. That's, I mean, that's, that's, it's, not even in the, it's not even in the realm of possibility mm-hmm. living in Maui, you know. Um, so it's, um, it's a bizarre time to be living. I don't know what to do. It's weird. I don't think uh, many of us know what, you know, I think if, if we really had real control, I think we'd all know what to do, but 38% of the public is a lot of people. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of people. Man. Yeah. It's like, wow. And they got guns. Right. We don't, and they don't have any rules and we do. <laughs> yeah. That's a tough, it's a tough moment. Now they're definitely, definitely strange times. It's just why we like, yeah, need yeah, these voices of compassion. Yeah, I don't know what we all did wrong. Uh, it's really wild. Yeah, definitely. But definitely. we all have to take some responsibility, especially as older folks. Right. We have some responsibility for this. You know, I, I watched a thing in uh, Charlottesville, and it was twenty-five and thirty-year-old kids I see in college holding Nazi flags. Like, what did we do wrong? Holy yeah. shit! And they weren't actors. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's, that, that's the part that to me, you know, Trump is Trump. It's, but to see, to see that is like, holy shit. Yeah. That was like a horror movie. That was like a horror movie. 
Yeah. To see who they were, you know, if it was, if it was like, I mean, I guess I'm prejudiced to some extent, but if it was all guys that are 65 and overalls without teeth. Right. <laughs> okay. I get it. You know, pissed off. Um, when you see 25 year old good looking like football players from college. Yeah. Um, holy shit. No, that was really unsettling. Yeah. Really unsettling. Yeah. Part of me hopes that by doing that, by them coming out, they're making themselves known that they've been here for a while. They just have not had a yeah, yeah, that, outlet. That's, and we can isolate the areas and the, the places where people need, because I think it's a matter of education. Like the people who are waving Nazi flags, it's clearly uneducated. They're taught hatred. And I think that I'm, I'm really hoping this is a dark, it's, it's dark as before the dawn scenario where all these bad things have to purge so that we can finally get back to where we need to be. But having lived through the sixties during a, during a t another time of social unrest, is there any, advice that you have for young people right now who do want to make a difference? Yeah, fine. Like, fuck it. <laughs> like, yeah. Do something. Don't like, you don't have to play by their rules. Um, that's part that's, you know, I think that set up my whole life was winning that, you know, although I was told after one of the a podcasts where I said it, I got a phone call from someone who said Vietnam War didn't happen until 10 until 10 years later, which I guess is sort of true. But I think my generation felt like by burning the cards and by burning the buildings and by doing the things we did, we helped to stop the war. Right. We, got we actually got empowered. And there was a couple of decades there where you could feel that empowerment. And then it all turned corrupt somewhere down the road. Um, and these people, I don't, I don't even know. I don't know what the answers are. But I know we felt empowered. We were, we were, you know, and I think you see our generation doing all that, you know, doing the apples, doing the, that, that, that empowerment thing of like, you know, we can do it. Yeah. You know, we can change this world. Yeah. And that's, that's what, that seems to be gone. But maybe coming back a little bit, the numbers for the last election look promising. Yeah. I think we're getting there slowly, but surely. I mean, I'm definitely hopeful about it, but yeah. Yeah. But, Holy, definitely slowly. <laughs> yeah, definitely slowly but surely. Um, one other kind of random question is um, somebody who, just given the uniqueness of your life, there's o there's only one other person who comes to mind who's had a similar trajectory, having started in, mu in music management and then moved on to movies and just had in an incredible amount of success, and that's Jerry Weintraub. Did you guys ever work together or cross paths or know each Never other? Never really as close as, as uh, we probably should have. But I knew him well. I liked him a lot. He was one generation up from me. Yeah. He was one step up. And um, they were pretty close fraternity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were pretty good. <laughs> you know, it was also the, the way Jerry was making his money in the early days when I was really rolling. Um, he wanted to stay off the radar screen because mm. he... He was getting buildings, but that always ended up coming from an artist and a promoter. He was getting buildings of what? He, he was the first guy to put together buildings where you, you'd buy an act for a lot of buildings. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had a piece of the act, every act that came in, like in Chicago, right. whether he promoted the show or didn't promote the show, because he gave that building Elvis and he gave that building Sinatra. 
and he made a deal with the company that did Zeppelin. He said, you're only going to get these acts if I get a piece of every act. Got it. Everything that comes through here. So he started accumulating buildings. Um, he, used the, he, he used his power with promoting Elvis. Um, so um, we were his beneficiaries. Got it. <laughs> Interesting ways of doing business. <laughs> yeah. But I have a lot of respect for him. Very cool. A lot of respect for him. Shep, this has been a, a tremendous honor for me. Uh, again, I, I've kind of considered you a spiritual mentor for a long time. I return to your wisdom and your your books and the and the movie again. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm very humbled by you having taken so much time with me. Thank you again. I thank really you. really do appreciate it. Have a great and weekend. Thank you. You too. And again, I I feel very fortunate to have stumbled ac- across your work and uh, and it, it benefits my life every single day. So thank you again. Thank you for that. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. All right. So I'm definitely kind of at a loss for where to even begin to try to recap the major lessons from this conversation. But I highly, again, highly recommend you watch the Supermensch documentary and read Shep's autobiography. If you got anything out of his words today, these two resources will really blow your mind. Anyway, I'm going to try my best to do a decent recap on some of the key takeaways from my conversation with Shep Gordon. Number one, don't wait for history to be made. Make it yourself. When he was managing Alice Cooper, Shep realized early on that the only way to break through the noise of the music industry is to stop waiting around for audiences and record labels to take note of your act and instead force them to with a spectacle that they cannot ignore. Shep became renowned at crafting large and elaborate PR stunts. Most notably, he had a truck with a naked image of Alice Cooper with a python over his genitals break down in the middle of Piccadilly Circus, thus causing a huge traffic jam. The image of the truck was all over the news and the stunt sold out stadiums and gave Alice a huge presence in England mission accomplished. The big learning here is to stop waiting for the powers that be to take notice and force them to by creating history yourself. Number two, study Joseph Campbell. Shep regularly rewatches the Bill Moyer conversational documentary series with Joseph Campbell, which is actually on Netflix right now. Multiple people, including George Lucas, cite the works of Joseph Campbell as pricelessly inspirational and insightful. In fact, George Lucas used his work as the foundation for Star Wars. Campbell teaches students to follow their bliss and chart their own path towards heroism. Ultimately, Campbell's work is a source of empowerment that comes from centuries of wisdom. These works are a guiding force in Shep's life and therefore something very worth checking out. Number three, always create win-wins. It's no surprise that the entertainment business is very shark-infested, loaded with bullies, fast talkers, and schemers of all stripes who in many cases are motivated entirely by their own self-interest. Across both music and movies, two notoriously cutthroat industries, Shep was the big exception. He was a perpetually nice person and always did compassionate business, and yet he was still extremely successful. That being said, in order to operate in either of these businesses, you do need to have the capacity to be extremely tough and assertive or else you'll be completely eaten alive. Shep was able to be both a nice guy and a really tough motherfucker. And the key to doing both was ensuring that there was always a win-win and that no real blood was ever drawn in any confrontation. 
confrontation. In every deal, there's usually a loser and a winner, someone who gets a bargain and someone who gets hung out to dry, at least a little. Shep goes to great lengths to make sure that even in difficult and complex business deals, there are always only winners and that both sides are having their needs met tremendously. This is big and it's very unique to Shep and it's one of the reasons why everyone in the industry completely and totally adores him. Anyway, there's so many more things to learn from Shep, so go see Supermensch, go read Shep's autobiography, and don't forget to subscribe to the Nick Taylor Horror Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and everywhere you listen. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Horror Show.